You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Hi, and welcome to episode 115 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, two English professors, assistant professors of English from Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, Nathan Gilmore. Oh, is that my cue to respond, Michael? Yes. (laughs) Oh, howdy. (laughs) And Danny Anderson. How's everybody doing out there? Hey, you caught your cue at least, although it helps when Nathan fumbles <laughs> yeah. the ball. <laughs> uh, our topic for today, we're going to be, be beginning our Star Wars triptych with a discussion of the first Star Wars movie, which I don't know, I think we're probably going to oscillate between calling Star Wars and A New Hope. Right. Uh, but first we have a little bit of listener feedback. This is from Joel Jostin, who's, uh, Joslin, not Jostin, who sent us an email. He said, I listened to your episode on the British Karamazov recently, and I enjoyed it. I'm glad you said that the chapter preceding the Grand Inquisitor, A Rebellion, is superior. I, uh, I've always felt the same way. Grand Inquisitor is still great, of course. Yeah, I, I think I said it on that episode, but Rebellion is my favorite thing that anybody's ever written. Uh, one aspect of Dostoevsky that I think is often overlooked is his humor. Despite the serious and often dark subject matter of his books, he also had a great sense of black comedy, almost Coen Brothers-esque. Parts of Notes from Underground, like the narrator's uh, absurd effort to get revenge on the man who really embarrassed him, mildly embarrassed him, brother, is are almost farcical. And the British Karamazov has scenes like the conflicting courtroom psychologist or Fyodor's buffoonery at the beginning. And I would say, I mean, that, that humor runs all the way through the novel. That's part of why it's so fun to read and to teach. That novel would be almost insufferable without without the humor, I think. It would be very, very difficult. Like like the darkest of the Coen Brothers movies, you need the uh, you need the comedy to handle the tragedy. Mm-hmm. I will also recommend uh, James Wood has a book called The Irresponsible Self on Laughter in the Novel. And uh, there's, a, there's a good chapter about Dostoevsky and comedy in there. Very good. James Wood, the literary critic, not James Woods, the uh, the actor. Right, I figured as much. <laughs> uh, we also got some Facebook feedback from listener Isabel Ayer, uh, which I'm going to keep pronouncing like Jane Eyre because that's the only way I know how to do it. Uh, Isabel probably isn't going to listen to this for a while again because she is now up to the Christmas specials episode, which actually was last Christmas, wasn't it, Michael? I, I think she may be further along than that, because she said she was reading The Human Stain on a recommendation. I think that's from the Jewish American Novels ah. episode. Oh, fascinating. Okay. Okay. I did, did I actually recommend that to Christians to read? I recommended uh, it. Ah, good. Good. Good for you. It's a great book. <laughs> Dan, Danny it. won't get fired, but I will. <laughs> it's my favorite book, I will say. But, yeah. uh, but at any rate, she said that she also spent a childhood being weirded out by the life and times of Santa Claus, uh, which we discussed at some length in that episode. It's the one where the Council of Immortals is making the decision whether to induct Santa Claus as a demigod. I've got to see this. I, it, <laughs> I'm telling you, man. It, <laughs> Even as a young child watching that, I knew something was very, very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, speaking of things being very, very wrong, let's move on to talking about Star Wars. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a bad feeling about this? <laughs> All right. Well, so many people um, have such a personal relationship with the Star Wars films that, that we we would really be amiss to not start with our own personal relationships with the, with the films. Um, what do these films mean to you, and when did you first watch them, Nathan? Well, uh, it's bizarre, and I, and I wonder if everyone else has a sort of anthropic principle when it comes to movies. I know I do, so that uh, the history of cinema just happens to fit one's uh, turning points in life. So uh, I was born the year that Episode Four hit the theaters. Uh, I was just old enough to start going to movies when Return of the Jedi did. Uh, I had just gotten my driver's license when Jurassic Park was in theaters. I was a senior in high school for Pulp Fiction, senior in college for The Matrix. Um, it's one of those things, you know, you, you, I, I sort of mark the landmarks in my life by the movies that were released. But episode four in particular was really the mythology of my childhood. My dad had a VHS machine relatively early, uh, and we taped the entirety of episode four off of TV uh, when I was a kid, and I just wore that tape out. So, I mean, it was uh, definitely the story that was shaping my imagination. The kids in the neighborhood uh, would find sticks, and we would have lightsaber fights. Uh, you know, this was, you know, my imaginative life as a young child. And I still remember, and I'm going to say this because I know my mother listens, uh, when she taped over Star Wars Episode Four with Wizard of Oz, uh, and, I mean, that was a, a dark day. Uh, I could sense in the force the screams of a thousand VHS tapes as flying monkeys replace Sith Lords. Do you, do you still hate the Wizard of Oz? Uh, no, I rather enjoy the Wizard of Oz now, but I also have both of them on, you know, professionally recorded video media. So I've, I have reconciled with that moment. Danny, how about you? What's your Star Wars experience? I, I almost can't remember, like ever seeing i mean i have no memory of when i saw star wars it's like one of those things that seems like it was always a part of my life and and mostly because of the toys i would have to say um i i I grew up in a a religious tradition we weren't supposed to go to movies right and so um i never saw star wars in the theaters until the re-releases in the late 90s um and it was uh but i yet i knew all about those movies i got the novelizations and and uh and of course the toys that were they i just I cannot imagine my childhood without the Star Wars toys. And, and it's one thing about those movies for me that uh, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, why I think later they um, I think we'll talk later about why they uh, seem to have this magical effect on people. But it, the toys for me are the the avenue in. It's like you got to sort of live the movie like perpetually. And, and so like you could always be Luke or Han or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, for me, it was about uh, almost the lifestyle of my childhood, those, those movies. Uh, and even though I never saw any of them until much later, I, I knew them inside and out by the time I had seen them. And so I, I, I have no like memory of actually watching the movies um, for the first time. I, I just sort of, they were always there kind of. Mm-hmm. Although a G.I. Joe could take a Star Wars character in a straight fight because it could bend its knees. <laughs> I actually I actually have a very similar story to Danny, which is I did not see those movies when I was a kid. I remember going over to my aunt's house, and she she had a son who was probably 10 years older than me, and 
he had I don't remember seeing the action figures but I remember, do you guys remember Viewmaster? Yeah. He had a Viewmaster with the Star Wars uh, mm. the first Star Wars movie in it so I remember I saw the, the still pictures of it and I played the Super Nintendo video games but I, I didn't see the movies until I was I don't know 12 or 13 so I, I, I don't have an intensely emotional relationship with Star Wars like a lot of people and there was also trading cards. Um, I forgot about that part of it. <laughs> you know, the the series I had Nathan's relationship with Star Wars with was the Back to the Future series, which uh, I also had recorded off of television. And so mm-hmm. that that's the one I watched over and over and over again, as I think I talked about during the science fiction episode. So, I mean, I I like Star Wars, but I I don't I don't have a deep connection with it. All right. Well, um, the Star Wars trilogy is, of course, inconceivable without George Lucas, a figure of some controversy. Uh, where does Episode Four fit into his filmography, Nathan? And um, can you tell us about how he conceived of this movie? Well, I was researching this uh, for today's recording, and I, I didn't know just how scant George Lucas's filmography was. Surprised I mean, surprised uh, me too. Yeah, I mean the the uh, you know as far as writing credits go, I mean the Star Wars series and the Indiana Jones series uh, really are the highlights of his career. Now, of course, actually, I need to correct you. He didn't actually write any of the Indiana Jones movies. Oh, he didn't now. No, okay. he has he has, he has story credit on them. Like he came up with the idea and maybe oh, the, you're right, the broad you're right. strokes of okay. the plot. But like uh-huh. he, he, I don't think he wrote. I don't think he wrote Empire and Jedi. In fact. No, I I knew he didn't write those. So, all right, yeah, I should have said production credit. My apologies, my apologies. Again, listeners, I'm not a film person. I sometimes blur the important terms. Uh, but, you know, before A New Hope comes around, uh, he does, uh, and that, see, now I'm worried about what verb I'm going to use. So I'll say he does make a uh, a sort of Brave New World style uh, science fiction film. And I always have to look to see what the number is. Uh, <laughs> THX1138. I actually wrote that down so that I wouldn't mess it up. Uh, which, you know, now is famous because it's George Lucas. But, you know, uh, it was not all that successful commercially. Really, American Graffiti is what puts him on the map. And it it is a fun little movie, I think. Again, not a great movie, I wouldn't say. Uh, but, you know, you're looking at uh, Ron Howard... And is it Richard Dreyfuss that's in there? I think so. All right. And, you know, it is a, basically a, a, I I want to say a movie almost without a plot line. Uh, (laughs) It's basically, you know, some people who have just wrapped up the school year uh, in a small town and they're cruising the strip, uh, you know, in a vaguely 1950s milieu a couple of them have just graduated and they're trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives. And apparently they do so over the course of one late night. It's the model for uh, Dazed and Confused, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of movies I didn't see when I was a kid and thus don't have any kind of emotional attachment <laughs> to. <laughs> I actually, I had a couple of friends in high school who are extras in that movie. So that's my emotional attachment to that one. Uh, but. After that, you know, as far as production credits, you know, he's involved in a goodly number of projects with Steven Spielberg and also as a solo uh, producer. Uh, But, you know, 
as far as episode four, I mean, it is his biggest commercial success uh, in 1977. Uh, it really sort of propels him into the spotlight. And, you know, as far as how he conceived the movie, to, to answer the second part, uh, he does say after he, you know, had become massively successful uh, that he was trying to sort of reintroduce mythology to the movies. And we're going to talk about some of the sources for that a little bit later. Uh, but, you know, he was, like I said, you know, this is why he brought John Williams in to do the soundtrack. Uh, this is why the movie, I mean, really doesn't have a whole lot of, you know, what I would call moral complexity to it. Uh, it is a fairly straightforward good guys and bad guys cowboy movie set in outer space. Uh, that's exactly the kind of movie he wanted to make. And I mean, that's really what made him a soaring success. So, uh, Danny, I mean, you're, you're the film guy here. Uh, what else should we know about George Lucas? Well, I just, that, I mean, he came out of this, um, sort of 1960s and 70s film school sort of movement along with, I mean, he's sort of associated with people like Spielberg and Martin Scorsese and uh, uh, Brian De Palma and these people that sort of uh, all came up out of California film schools. And in fact, uh, that THX 1138 was uh, originally a student film that was uh, quite uh, you know, well thought of as a student film for him. And, and then he uh, like remade that uh, as a, a, a feature that um, was not, received well by the studio apparently. And, um, uh, and it kind of, uh, really led to a bumpy relationship with him and studios. Um, and I think maybe this, uh, this, it was the seed of this sort of autonomy that ends up, I think, destroying him as an artist. <laughs> like he decides that he yeah. has to be in complete control of everything. And, and I think that, that if he has any, I mean, any drawback it's that and in some ways i feel like the arc of darth vader is the arc of of, of george lucas and um, he's just sort of his quest for absolute power destroys every <laughs> good thing he ever did but um but uh and also um uh um i forgot what i was gonna say so yeah yeah just the, the film school connection there was uh i think one thing that is important to think about when thinking about george lucas because it was um sort of an anti-system system in its way its own little counterculture uh, alongside the hollywood system that sort of uh uses the hollywood system um as a kind of evil necessity <laughs> would you, would, you right. would you identify him as part of the auteur movement danny um no, I, I I don't really think so. I, I feel like he's much more uh, he, he his I associate him with a much more sort of old fashioned like studio system. Um, and, and so the studio system as he inherited it in the seventies had changed from the old studios to uh, like corporate owned like entities, right? And so that's what he was sort of uncomfortable with. And so I feel like he. Um, was much more um, systematic than than someone like even Martin Scorsese, I think, who's who's uh, like I think fits more neatly into the auteur um, cast. But yeah, do either of you know? Um, I've heard conflicting reports about this. Was this originally conceived as nine films from the beginning, or is that something he made up later to justify making more films? <laughs> I I don't know. The thing I heard I watched some special features on uh the, over the weekend and uh the thing that one thing he said is he he saw the only thing he said in that that, that stuck me stuck to me was he saw that the um uh the three movies at uh, once he had written like the 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 trilogy essentially as one movie realized it was way too big 
and used basically the first act as Star Wars, hoping to um, get back to the other two. Um, I, mm-hmm. The other the whole nine movie thing, I don't know. Yeah, I I, I I have heard that mythology of the nine movies, but I've never you know seen any actual quotes from George Lucas to confirm it. I do know that in the DVD extras, I believe to episode three, he makes the utterly stupid claim that he intended the uh, six movies that currently exist to be watched in order, which is just <laughs> utter baloney since episode three ends with a grand... Uh, silent movie finale homage to the whole Star Wars series. I don't know how anybody would get through it if they started with episode one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I said last week I'd never seen two or three, but man, episode one is just, it's so joyless and ugh. Yeah. Well, like I said, I mean, episode three actually has its moments because Lucas turned over some of the writing to actual script writers. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I mean, the, the, since you're probably not going to watch it and since it's been, you know, around for a decade now, I don't think it's a spoiler, but uh, the last few minutes of the movie, uh, like I said, I mean, are just John Williams' soundtrack playing over a series of silent scenes, uh, including the construction of the Death Star, including... Uh, Owen and Baru receiving the young Luke Skywalker as a baby, including, you know, the arrival of Leia on Alderaan. Uh, so, I mean, it's definitely one of those things that uh, it, it's handing the fans of Star Wars a little, you know, visual representation of their favorite characters landing where they start at the beginning of Episode Four. Yeah. Well, maybe we can have some hope for 7, 8, and 9 since he's not... I think I think he he sold the rights to Disney and he's just kind of putting his name on it, but he's not directing or writing them. Yes, yeah. that is true. You hate and to badmouth the guy thing. that much, but <laughs> well, I, and, and you know, one of the things, and I mean, I know this is such a commonplace now that it's going to sound banal to say it. He has some immense talents in imagining mythologies and almost no talent in writing scripts. He is <laughs> he's very similar in that way to M Night Shyamalan. Mm. Except, I mean, M. M. Night Shyamalan is a legitimate, legitimately great director in the sense of, like, he gets some really amazing shots. I don't, I've never really had that feeling from Lucas. Right, right. But, but these are these are both guys who are sunk, as Danny says, by getting the absolute control over their work that they want. Yeah. Uh, th- I mean, that that would be an interesting book if nobody's written it. Is is the um, the the way that that artistic types work better under constraint. Mm-hmm. There's a Malcolm Gladwell book for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, goodness! Listen, I think like Hitchcock is a perfect example. Like that, he's working under the constraints of not only studio systems, but even for much of it, most of his career, uh, like uh, and like rating systems, right? Mm-hmm. And there's yeah, the, yeah, uh, and so, uh, but what's going on in order to get at those kind of naughty bits are, is so much more brilliant than if he had just been able to show the, the naughty bits. You know what I mean? And so I feel like, yeah, those those bo- those barriers really are productive for for really great artists. Mm-hmm. Or you, or you think of pop music in an age where you can say anything sexual you'd like. Once you get past the breaking of the boundary, once you get past Prince and Madonna in the eighties. There's there's nothing particularly interesting about it, but you can still go back and listen to the old blues songs that are nothing but in your window, and they still seem clever and vital. 
mm-hmm. because because those constraints somehow allow you to. I guess they make you work harder. Uh, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Star Wars certainly did not invent the giant summer blockbuster. I believe Jaws invented it, but it uh, it certainly belongs to that tradition. Um, Danny, can you situate that movie, this movie, and that tradition to go back to language we used a few weeks ago? What did A New Hope do to Hollywood, and what did it do to the neighborhood theater? Well, um, actually, I, I I always think of it as a summer movie too, but apparently it was intended to be a Christmas movie, um, and the production was such a disaster that uh, they weren't gonna, it wasn't ready basically, and so it became a summer movie by necessity. Um, there's a little side note, but, um, it does definitely sort of represent the summer movie, like in every way that we understand that term right now. Um, and just a a little like foreground, I guess for it, Uh, if you think about the seventies, like as, as you know, for movies, right. That you think of these kind of dark gritty, um, movies that are like based in sort of like urban realism like the the Scorsese's and and all of these um like 70s movies like Dog Day Afternoon I mean there's all these sort of uh um like uh gritty urban realism um and so um and even the blockbuster movies of the time were all these sort of big disaster movies you have uh you know airplanes crashing and and ships sinking and and these sorts of things and and, 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 uh, towers infernoing yes (laughs) towers infernoing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, exactly. And so um, Star Wars, I think one of its uh, really kind of genius sort of innovations is to jump leap, leap forward ahead of all that and go right back to like a 1930s style uh, serial. Uh, and, and so he's purposefully trying to make something like Buck Rogers and, and um, for the for a for a new time, for a new moment. And, and Nathan alluded to before um an attempt to recover some mythology uh, and bring it back into uh, um, into cinema, and so uh, it it really kind of stood in the face of what uh, a big blockbuster movie had come to be in the 1970s, um, and so um, the big its success then um, led to what it did well being replicated <laughs> like of course by Hollywood as, as Hollywood will do. And, and one of the things that was so successful and unexpected at the time um, from this movie was the merchandising. I talked about my experience with the movie being largely through the toys. Right. Um, and that was something that Lucas had uh, just thrown into his contract as being control of that sort of thing. The studio didn't even think about it as being a valuable asset. Uh, and so, um, but with the to- when the toys and the merchandising for the movie posters, um, serializations, and uh, these sorts of things, comics, um, those things all became um, so obviously valuable that I think now summer blockbusters are made in order to create toys to sell <laughs> in, in their in their worst form. I think in some ways, and that's sort of uh, like one of the. <clears throat> you know, possibly negative legacies of this, of this movie. Um, and so, but it's also the primary way in which it has affected what a blockbuster is, is something that reaches off of the screen and into, um, other kinds of markets as well. Mm -hmm. And an example of that, you know, movies made for the sake of selling toys. Uh, you think about the pod racing sequence from episode one, uh, you know, that's something that never should have taken that much time out of the movie, but it sure did sell a heck of a lot of toys Absolutely. Video games and video too. games. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yep. And Darth Maul himself is this sort of visually striking character, right? And, and is mm-hmm. a very popular, but he's barely in that movie, right? <laughs> and, right, and, right. And he, he has very little success, and then he just gets cut in half, right? And and then, but uh, but but he's a great visual, and, and he's a great toy. Um, right, right. Yeah. And, and, and of course, the Star Wars series has a huge track record of making a toy based on every single character who's ever been on screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Whether they're on screen two seconds or two hours, there's yes. even there's even the charred corpses of Uncle Owen and Aunt Baruth. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I never saw those. Ouch. Um. But I I will say, Danny, I've I've read some comic book uh, treatments of Darth Maul, and they actually do start to realize some of the potential in that character. Mm-hmm. But you're right in the film itself. I mean, he's basically a a a prop, mm-hmm. you know, he's what Darth Sidious sends to not do much except for kill Qui-Gon Jinn. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness. Spoiler right. alert. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have very negative feelings towards that first movie particularly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we've, uh, we've alluded to this several times, so let's go ahead and get into it. Um, the most noteworthy academic thing about this movie is probably that it it fits rather neatly into the mythopoeic schema that Joseph Campbell came up with for his 1949 book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. That's not an accident. Lucas openly conceived of this film on those terms, and Campbell, I'm pretty sure, ends up using Star Wars in his uh, TV documentary, The Power of Myth. Nathan, what can you tell us about the monomyth that Campbell comes up with, and, and what does it have to do with Star Wars? Well, first of all, uh, as I discovered when I was researching, uh, Campbell and Lucas never met in person until after the trilogy was completed, uh, which blew my mind. I always thought that, you know, uh, Lucas, rather, was a student of Campbell's in some formal sense, but he had just read his books. Uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, first of all, I, I haven't read him carefully since the late 90s, so listeners, if I get any details wrong here, feel free to write in and correct me is largely working with a sort of mashup of Carl Jung's uh, archetypal psychology, uh, Fraser's myth- mythological theory from the Golden Bough, uh, and really starts to conceive of mythology as something whose structure, not just its presence, uh, grows out of certain turning points in individual and in collective life cycles. Uh, so, I mean, a few of the things that, you know, definitely show up, uh, in the Star Wars trilogy, uh, the whole thing begins as one part of the life cycle of the galactic community ends and another one begins. Uh, one of the first announcements in the movie is when, uh, General, and I always get his name wrong because it sounds so much like the Vietnam thing. Is it Tonkin? Uh, Tarkin, I think. Ah, see, and I, I, I know it sounds like Gulf of Tonkin. I, I know it sounds like uh, the Roman king Tarquin. Yeah, and it's actually Tarkin. Okay, I can still I can tell by his foul stench when I walked on board. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, one of the first things he says is that uh, the last remnants of the old republic have been swept away. Uh, so I mean, that is the end of one communal life of the Republic in the beginning of another. Uh, another thing that is a very big concern in episode number four uh, is that Luke Skywalker's uncle is always trying to hide the influence of his 
as yet unrevealed father, uh, whereas Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, seems to want Luke to take up where his father left off before he was betrayed and murdered by one Darth Vader. Uh, so a number of things going on there. First of all, uh, you've got the life cycle of the individual, the coming of age, the adulthood. You've got the old age in the person of Obi-Wan Kenobi. He is too old to be undertaking these sorts of things, so he needs to find a young hero uh, to sort of take the torch from him. Uh, incidentally, Campbell you know, refers to that as the wizard figure. As David Grubbs has told us on this podcast before, wizard doesn't necessarily mean Merlin. Uh, it can simply mean anyone who is old and wise, so it is the wiseard. And then, you know, like I said, the plot line, you know, sort of, sort of emerges out of this great transition period in the larger community. So again, all of these things, the union psychology, the Frasier uh, myth theory, all of these things kind of flow together in Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. He expands it more in his big series of four books on mythological theory. Uh, and notably, the reprint of Hero with a Thousand Faces that I own uh, actually has a representation of Luke Skywalker holding a lightsaber uh, along with a, you know, Greco-Roman-looking hero and a some sort of samurai figure. Uh, so Campbell himself realized that George Lucas was actually his biggest uh, cheerleader, uh, and really kind of ran with it. Now, uh, Michael, I, I haven't actually seen The Power of Myth. I've only read about it. I mean, have you seen that interview with Moyers? Uh, no, I haven't. So I, that, that is something I heard, but I don't know. I gotcha, I gotcha. Danny, would you add anything about the, the Campbell boogie-woogie? No, I, I saw Bill Moyers talking about this, and, and Moyers um, said that Campbell told him, that George Lucas was his greatest student, right? And, and so I feel like um, you kind of hit the hit nail on the head. And I think that that was uh, undeniably part of why this movie not only stood out against what was <clears throat> popular and, and, and typical in Hollywood at the time, but probably made such an impact, particularly particularly on young people. And so, um, you know, I think that the his going back to these sort of archetypal archetypical uh, mythotypes are, are are definitely uh, vital to the success of this of this movie. Mm-hmm. And then I think replacing that with this like really horrible Freudian um, uh, thing that he did in the the first trilogy was also one of the reasons that the fir- the the prequel trilogy trilogy fails so badly. So the uh, the archetypes are also what makes. Star Wars so easily parodyable. Mm. Oh sure, sure. At least one of the, one of the things. The other thing we'll get to now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had not seen these films in more than a decade, and my wife had never seen them at all. So we were we were coming into them relatively clean. And one of the things that struck us both is how bad some of the central performances of this movie are. Mark Hamill, I mean, is. I don't know a way around saying how terrible he is in this movie. He is he's he's awful, right? I mean, um he he seems like he has all the lines written on the back of his hand and he's looking at them as he as he reads them. <laughs> uh Harrison Ford, who I remembered as being very very good in this movie, mostly seems to be talking to nobody who's in the room and Alec Guinness uh is over it. Like uh I I know he did not like this movie. And you can tell from his performance, he is he is not happy to be there. Um, 
with this in mind, Danny, what do you have to say about these performances? Do you want to defend them to me? And if they're as bad as Victoria and I thought they were, what accounts for the magic of these movies? Because despite the weakness of the central performances, we were both taken in by the movie, nevertheless. Well, <laughs> I, I I will disagree with you on on most of those points, but um, um, I did one thing in the the special features that I watched. Uh, Harrison Ford was talking, and there was actually quite a bit dedicated, surprisingly, um, to actors talking about Lucas and his inability or unwillingness to direct actors. Um, and and like Harrison Ford just outright said that he he Lucas had no sort of feel for the craft of acting. And for him, he wrote the words down. It's all right there. Just say the words, basically, um, is how uh, Ford puts it. And, and so um, the actors, I think, struggled under his direction, for one thing. Um, and so any of this sort of awkwardness that you're sort of uh, seeing there may be attributable to that. To another thing, I mean, Carrie Fisher was 19. She was, you know, completely unknown at the time. Mark Hamill, I think, was on television at the time. Um, and Harrison Ford was still, like, had done very little work at the time. Um, so these are not, like, really seasoned, you know, veterans for the most part. But um, despite that, I do think that the performances aren't as bad um, as what you're characterizing, Michael. <laughs> and I understand the Mark Hamill thing. I think for this movie, Mark Hamill's performance actually isn't so awful because I think it's appropriate to the mental state um, and maturity level of the character. Um, he does seem very kind of childlike uh, in his in his everything he says. So when he says, Uncle Owen, like all these sorts of like uh, annoying, uh, uh, you know, phraseologies that he comes up with. I think it's always work for that character. Now, later on in the movies when he's supposed to be this more kind of world-weary, you know, sagastic kind of person, I, I, it doesn't work at all for me. I think he gets worse as the movies goes on, go on. But So um, we have that to look forward to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, when the moment when he finds out that Darth Vader is his father, that, that's like one of the worst no's of all time, I think, in cinema. But uh, so I'll give you that. Um, and as for the other performances, though, I, I, this is remember standing in the face of realism right and, and so this is like going back to a time of hollywood when acting was much more sort of stylized and less realistic and so uh i i don't i, I didn't really have the problem with any of the uh, uh other performances um in that movie and i think that you know having someone like peter cushing there as tarkin is is sort of these and, and alec guinness of course as uh, as obi-wan um were sort of bedrock uh, performances. And I think Guinness seems over it, as you say, but I, I think that he, the way I interpret that performance is that he's got this sort of both like wisdom and kind of like quirky sense of humor going on at the same time. And I, and I think like, I, that's what I take out of his performance as you interpret as him being sort of dismissive of the movie. I think that he's sort of bringing a kind of humor that uh, Ewan McGregor actually, I think, picks up really well in the, in the, in the prequel trilogy. I think he's really, uh, really excellent in all those movies. And, and I think that um, partially because he captures what Alec Guinness brought to, uh, to the original, to the original Obi-Wan role. But, um, and so... What I would say, why even despite the awkwardness of those performances, even though I don't, I won't, I won't grant you that they're terrible. I, I do understand your point, though. Um, I think that the movies 
somehow work as magic. Um, and you have these innovative special effects that at the time were kind of stunning. Lucas was very unhappy with them. And that's, just, I think why he over, over emphasize or overemphasized that for the prequel trilogy. But, um, the special effects take you into another world, particularly as a child. And, and, and so they're not CGI. They are, you know, claymation and they are, uh, these moving models and things like that. So it seems very sort of, it's magic that seems real. Right. And, and they're, like Nathan's talking about, this is a story that people can relate to. We, we can recognize our own discontent in Luke Skywalker's, um, brash youthful, uh, youthfulness. And, and we have, um, this wish fulfillment in Han. Like I, I know I always wanted to be that sort of free, you know, look out for myself sort of character. Right. And you have a brave and beautiful princess there. They're like, uh, the characters themselves are, uh, aspirational in, in some ways. And then I think the idea of the force is also like builds leads to the magic of these movies that transcend whatever performances you're talking about. There's a, a philosophically just fascinating religion that, uh, a, it gives meaning to everything uh, in the in the universe. That's uh, that, and so if you buy into this idea of the force, things make sense, even things that you don't like. And it gives you the sort of ability to see actual evidence of it at any given moment. If you're in control of the force, you can you can bring your lightsaber to you, and make it float across the room, and so it makes this sort of religion sort of very in your face and real. It's kind of a uh, the visible power thing, sort of like the allure of the of name it, claim itism, right? And, and so I think uh, uh, there's a uh, there's so much magical going on in the movies that whatever's going on in the performances, I think that doesn't get foregrounded um, because the for performances are in support of this larger sort of magic. He's also smart enough to not spell out everything about the Force. Like, we, we learn certain things about it in this movie, but for the most part, it's background that the characters seem to all be aware of and the audience is not i think that's very wise because i think if you if you if he had come up with a full theology for the force which was revealed in the in the film i think it would be pretty weak yeah yeah and it would have been annoying too right right and analogously to that michael i mean the politics of the empire are also alluded to as if all of the characters know about it uh, but you only get bits and pieces in this film, and I think that also makes it, uh, you know, something that that works. And again, I and you know, to go back to my earlier claim, you know, uh, it works so well because you don't know how Jar Jar Binks ended the Galactic Republic, <laughs> right? So <laughs> if you did happen to watch, you know, Episode Two before you watch these, you know, it would ruin a lot of what is interesting about Episode Four. Did Jar Jar Binks ruin the Galactic Republic? Oh yeah, he cast the uh, emergency vote to grant Palpatine emergency military powers. I knew that he ruined the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and, I, and and I've got to think, and I mean, I, I might be wrong about this, and I'm sure G George Lucas would uh, deny it if you asked him, uh, but I have a hunch that that bit in Episode 2 was a sop that he threw to all of the fans who were so angry about the existence of Jar Jar Binks. Cause that's really the only thing he does in episode two is cast the vote that gives Palpatine dang near Imperial powers. Way to go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the best performance in uh, episode four is R2D2. 
Oh yes. yeah, that's true. <laughs> a little there's a, a real little person in there, and, and he's he was a, a comedic stage actor um, uh, from from an English stage actor, Kenny Baker, and he, mm-hmm. yeah, he he like really did bring a personality to that that trash can essentially. Yeah, it was really really brilliant. Yeah, and and uh, I forget the fellow's name who plays three PO, but he is Anthony he, Daniels. Yeah, he 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 is also that's also a very good performance in a, in a yeah. role that is you know a piffle. Yes. Well, and you know those. If, have you ever seen? There's an old Akira Kurosawa movie called um, The Hidden Fortress, and I, I know that Lucas is aware of these movies, and you could see a lot of the roots of the story of Star Wars in that movie. Um, there's a princess being saved by some sort of rogue, and there are these two sort of comical characters, these these you know local like village country people and um and they very much have a, a r2d2 c3po kind of relationship and i think mm-hmm. lucas recognizes the value that that brings to a movie like this um, mm-hmm. well yeah that's another little bit of background that i had read somewhere and i i couldn't find it when i was re- researching for this episode but uh it said that the jedi were actually based off of a samurai clan the jow Dai. Mm. well the other thing that struck me on this viewing uh, is the way that Lucas sets up a conflict between the pragmatic and technological on one side and the, the mystical, for lack of a better word, on the other. Um, Nathan, am I just on another of my anti-technology jags, or do I actually have something here? <laughs> well, and this is this is where what I said earlier really comes to fruition, because George Lucas has an obvious talent for creating mythologies, and one of the evidences of that uh, is not just that he brings... Uh, Joseph Campbell to the sort of space opera genre. Uh, But it's also that this conflict that you point to is one that crosses over the lines between the good guys and the bad guys. So running parallel in episode four, you can see the Imperial officer uh, in the boardroom scene uh, who refers to the Death Star as the greatest power in the universe. Uh, And then Han Solo, who says, you know, um, hokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. Those two characters are running parallel across the obvious sides in the movie, just as Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader are running parallel as proponents of the Force as the ultimate power in the universe. Uh, so it, it it's definitely an element in Episode Four. Uh, it's one that, you know, like I said, crosses the sides. And one of the things about it is, you know, those two tendencies uh really come together really equally matched in the final fight scene because on the one hand you have a bit of military espionage that has brought the rebel alliance technical knowledge right it comes from an analysis of blueprints of the base uh that gives them the knowledge of how to destroy the thing and then of course you've got the technological wonder itself that can blow up planets but then on the other side you've got Darth Vader, who whittles down the rebel assault to basically one starfighter uh, and has Luke Skywalker in his sights. I mean, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, Luke Skywalker should die in that scene. And of course, uh, as all of us remember, Danny's right. I mean, this is the moment where uh, once you discovered girls, you wanted to be Han Solo. Before that, you wanted to be Luke Skywalker. Uh, But, you know, this is where Han Solo, you know, uh, comes flying in with some sort of nearby star at his back. 
uh, again, a, a very sort of cowboy movie convention, right? Using the natural environment to gain tactical advantage over a superior force. Uh, so he becomes invisible, comes flying in, knocks Darth Vader out of the way, so on and so forth. But then, in, in order to destroy the thing, in order to actually exploit the technological edge that the Rebellion has achieved, uh, Luke uses the Force to actually target the exhaust vent. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, short answer to, you know, after all of that long-winded analysis, Michael, is that's precisely what's going on in this movie, and they overlap in some very, very interesting ways. Uh, Danny, I mean, am I leaving out any big moments of technology versus mysticism? <clears throat> well, I mean, Darth Vader's body, um, I, one of his, one of the things that marks him as a villain, I think, is the mechanical nature of his body, right? Mm -hmm. And and later on, it with in Empire Strikes Back when Luke loses his hand um, and is replaced with a mechanical hand, I mean, this becomes an important. Um, sort of warning for him that he may be becoming too much machine, right? And mm. the Obi-Wan Obi spirit says as much to, to Luke in, in The Empire Strikes Back. And, um, and, and so there's a um, uh, definitely that conflict between, between technology and, and just organic mysticism is something that like plays out its, on itself on Darth Vader's very body, I think. But also I think that, um, I, I, that that's what makes... Lucas's failure in the the prequel trilogy all the more ironic. It's like <laughs> because that's what went wrong with those movies. Everything that he like tried to avoid in the first ones, he just bought and and like wholesale in in the 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 sequels, the prequels. And so you have a a complete reliance on the political machinery of the republic i mean there's so many scenes where there's like senate like like procedural meetings and that sort of thing you have an over explanation of the force with these midichlorians and you have <laughs> um like even worse acting um because the people are so stifled because they're talking to nothing everything is cgi and under his complete like mechanical control in these Looks movies and so cold and ugly and exactly. charmless and this is why I'm actually very um, – I, I anticipate these new Star Wars movies with J.J. Uh, Abrams uh, much more because I didn't see the second Star Trek movie. But the first one I think works so much better than any of those Star Wars movies because it, they use real sets. They're like on location in places with real actors doing real stunts and these sorts of things. And it just feels like a real experience. And even – you don't have to go that far into the future – uh, at the same time as the prequel trilogy was coming out, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was was coming out, and it uses CGI as well, but always rooted in real places uh, and, and real performances. And so, um, the his sort of uh, growing dependency on technology, ironically, uh, is what I think destroyed this franchise uh, for uh, people who appreciated the the, the original trilogies he, like me. He seems to have almost no understanding of why people like his movies yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's true because i mean i i know he just did the story i know this was spielberg's movie but the fourth indiana jones movie is the same thing the charm of the indiana jones movies is that there there aren't if there are any computer generated effects there aren't very many they're they're mostly old-fashioned stunts Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that that is the that is the great joy of the Indiana Jones movies. And then you see this fourth one and it's nothing but it's nothing but CGI. Mm -hmm. 
I still haven't uh, seen the fourth one. Yeah, I haven't either. I haven't oh, it's, either. Oh, it's terrible. It's awful. Don't yeah. see it. One, one more moment, Michael, and, and I, I would kick myself if I didn't talk about this. Of course, early in the movie, uh, one of the most off-quoted and oft-appropriated lines in the film uh, is when the Empire sets up a planet-wide dragnet on the planet Tatooine, uh, and it is precisely by means of a Jedi mind trick that Obi-Wan Kenobi is able to slip through that bureaucratic technical net uh simply by you know convincing the weak-minded uh and the significance of that again it's it's hard to say whether uh lucas was looking forward to you know the idea of the weak minds of the galactic senate in the prequels uh but the weak-minded can be swayed by it and because all of this technology ultimately is connected to the human mind the force ultimately allows them to escape that imperial dragon so like i said these aren't the droids you're looking for is another one of those moments of <laughs> the technical and the mystical coming into d- direct contact although interestingly enough it doesn't work on the fella in the uh, cantina yeah true enough like true it'll, enough. it'll work on it'll work on a stormtrooper but not on a uh, you know lone sociopath well, he has yeah. the, death, the death sentence on eight systems. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I know so, too much. Speaking of, of speaking of performances that are so bad that they're awesome. Yes, <laughs> he doesn't like you. <laughs> I don't like you either. <laughs> you know, while while we're in the cantina, and I know we 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 kind of winked at this last week, but uh, we should go we should go ahead and talk about why it matters that Han shoots first. Oh, thank you. Would one of you like to take it? Well, yes, I'll take it. Um, I think it, it matters. A, there's a logical problem with Greedo being three feet away, having his gun at Han's chest, and the laser blast going four feet above the wall. I mean, there's just a logical. <laughs> the physics don't work, okay, um, first of all. But second of all, I mean, if there's any moral complexity in these movies, Nathan alluded to this earlier, it's in the character of Han Solo and his sort of um, selfishness <clears throat> that he sort of overcomes uh, in his sort of character arc over the three movies um, to uh, 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 is really what's kind of makes the movie in many ways interesting and realistic. Uh, and so like by taking that like selfish kind of self-preservation instinct away from him, um, I think it was ridiculous. And, and I have no problem with him shooting first. I don't even consider it to be a, a murderous act. I mean, I, I still see the self-defense, right? And so, um, mm-hmm. so no, no, I think that, that Han's strength is his moral ambiguity, uh, as a character, his strength as a character and probably as, as a, a pirate, <laughs> that's his, his, the moral ambiguity is his strength. And so by, by taking that away in service of, of trying to make this more and more of a kid's movie, um, I think it was just, it had, has sort of disastrous, um, consequences for the movie and seeing these uh remixes of the movie i don't really have many problems with the other additions the you know the, the additional landscapes and, and characters um but this one it was just sort of unforgivable right right and i wouldn't even call that moral complexity in the original i'd just call it moral movement right uh it's not as if you know han solo later on you know goes on a bender and you know betrays the rebel alliance you know so that he can preserve his own whatever right uh i mean it is and a way of establishing at the outset that this is a character who is going to have to decide whether to be a pirate or whether to be a revolutionary yep 
And, you know, that's that's the great Yahoo moment at the end of the movie, right? You know, where he has left, he's going to be a pirate, he's always going to be a pirate, never going to be anything else, but then at the last minute he comes flying out of the sun and, you know, ends up committing the selfless act that allows, you know, the balance to be tipped. Mm-hmm. I, I connect that, that change to something Spielberg did to E.T. I don't remember if you guys remember this. Um, in the early in the early 2000s, Spielberg re-released E.T., but in the scene at the end with the uh, FBI agents chasing Elliot and E.T., uh, he replaced the guns they were holding with walkie-talkies. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> because, God forbid, we see a gun. Right, in the hand of a federal agent. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's it's the same sort of wrong-headed. I mean, it's it's the uh, it's the thing from Jurassic Park, right? You, you you were so busy worrying about whether you could, you didn't ask whether you should. Yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very nice. We're glad we're glad you can change your movie, but why would you want to? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and even if you do see it as a flaw, like, and you regret it later, that doesn't mean it was a wrong decision at the time. Uh, and so, like, artistically, I mean, it's like Wordsworth going back and continually revising his great poetry into into a mess later on in his life, right? And so, um, you have these sort of power mad tinkerers, like Michael, Michael Jackson. Yes, I, I remember reading the Edge from you two saying that, <clears throat> that Michael Jackson's plastic surgery addiction was just a species of studio perfectionism. So, so I mean, when you when you get digital studios, it's very very easy to go back and re-record everything over and over and over again until you get it perfect. And I remember reading that he said that's what that's what Michael Jackson was doing with his face. The, the problem is your face isn't digital, so it doesn't hold up as well. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's a shame they're working that, on that. It's a shame that because of Lucas's, uh, you know, subsequent actions with Star Wars, uh, like. It's almost difficult to talk about the movies uh, without being critical of him. It's almost it's not interesting to talk about those movies unless you're critical of how he ruins them. Uh, And so (laughs) it's it's such a shame for me because I I still have very fond feelings for those for those movies. Like like I said, I was I was surprised how engrossing they are, despite not not liking the performances. I don't even think Mm. the writing is that great, but there's something about those movies that even even if you didn't see them when you're five years old, suck you in. Mm. But I mean, a lot of the charm of those movies is how low tech they are. By by today's standards. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, obviously, that wasn't a lot of the charm in 1977, but. Right. Right. Well, we have hit on a few things that are interesting to me, but I'm sure I'm leaving out more than I've included, as usual. Let's end today by talking about some other aspect of the movie that fascinates us, or if there isn't one, um, tell our audience what to look for in their viewing of The Empire Strikes Back for next week. Oh, uh, start with you, Danny. Okay. Um, well, one thing that's always kind of, I found interesting, and it's, I think, a, a, an offshoot of Nathan's talking about the conflict between pragmatic and technology, is setting, uh, locations. And I think that the mm. contrast of locations in this movie, there, there are fewer contrasts. You have the desert landscape of Tatooine, and then you have sort of the technological uh, like uh, hallways called, called black and gray, cold hall, hallways of empire you know, military bases. Now in, in future episodes, when we talk about Empire Strikes Back, you have like a snowscape, you have jungle and swamp, and, and, and there's all sorts of um, interesting play with, with, with the spaces. And I, I think that that 
is one of the the ways that the movie gets at this or the movies get at this um question of the natural versus the mechanical and, and the kind of evilness of the mechanical and that sort of thing so that's one thing that um i'm always looking for in movies and, and I think it really stands out in Star Wars, and uh, we'll probably right. talk about it next week. Of course, every, every, up... plan, every planet is a single environment. Well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. And then, of course, in the the prequel trilogy, when we see Coruscant, it's nothing but a city, right? I mean, it's like a, right. all the way, like a a completely um, cityfied, you know, space. And so, yeah, it's like New Jersey. Um, well and and again danny i I think you're absolutely right that i mean that's part of what makes the original trilogy rather than the prequels work so well is that the only face of the empire is the battleship right yeah Uh, the only specifically imperial settings are aboard military hardware so i mean they are a one-dimensionally military entity in those movies Whereas, you know, all of the planetary settings, you're right, are out on the edge of nowhere. Um, and, you know, well, in episode four, j- just to bring the focus back to this one, the other setting that is very notable is the Mayan ruins, uh, you know, that are that stand in as the rebel base at the end of it on Yavin 4. Which yeah, I didn't even remember. Star Wars nerds out there. Yes, I know it's Yavin 4. <laughs> During the, uh, the award ceremony, right? Yes, that's right. where we break well, and from before then, I mean, when the X-Wings are uh, preparing for liftoff, right? I mean, we see that the hangars are built into those Mayan temples. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah, and it's a, it's a break from both the, the, the blank desert of, of Luke's childhood um, uh-huh. and the you know cold militarism of, of the Empire. And so you have this more sort of organic green, green place right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, reveal, Michael, uh, what it is that draws you in. You might not have been aware of it. Actually, you probably were. Uh, But it is John Williams. Mm. Uh, And, I mean, he is absolutely the ace in the hole. Without John Williams, there is no George Lucas. I'll just go ahead and say it that that starkly. Uh, John Williams, of course, you know, uh, becomes famous before the Star Wars trilogy with the soundtrack for Jaws. Uh, You know, he basically reintroduces a very symphony-heavy romantic sound to action movie soundtracks. Uh, You know, Jaws, I mean, its soundtrack uh, isn't the sort of, you know, techno space music that originally was supposed to go with that movie. But instead, I mean, it sounds like uh, a a good old-fashioned pirate movie soundtrack. You know, the of course, everyone remembers the two cello notes over and over. But you listen to the rest of that soundtrack, and I mean, it is music to go on an adventure to. You move on over to Star Wars, and even when the the actors are giving these terrible, terrible performances, uh, and I'll, I'll just split the difference between you guys and say let's blame the the director and the actors for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even when they're giving these terrible, terrible performances, you've got this wonderful, rich symphonic music going on in the background with these, these melody lines uh, that really are so memorable. Uh, that you can play three or four notes of them and people will recognize them, uh, not as Gustav Holst's The Planets, uh, which is where a lot of those mem- melody lines get pulled from, uh, but as Star Wars melodies, right? Uh, you think of Princess Leia's theme, you think about the 
you know, the grand swell that happens early in the movie when Luke Skywalker is looking out at the twin sons of Tatooine, uh, all of these things, uh, are John Williams doing right. Uh, this is something, and, and again, this is in my mind, one of the few things that redeems the prequel trilogy is that even when, uh, Hayden Christensen, uh, and Natalie Portman are giving their terrible, terrible performances, when they have to be on the screen alone, which are the most painful parts of episode two. Any movie. Uh, what now? <laughs> of any movie. Uh, ever. Well, yeah. But <laughs> when you watch it, John Williams is so skillful that he can make you think that something important is happening. And again, I, I, I really do think that without that soundtrack, and I'm sure someone's done this on YouTube, pulled the soundtrack out of these scenes and make you watch them without the music, which I... I don't even want to watch because it would ruin the movie. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that, you know, Star Wars really does, uh, not the first one to do it, but certainly, you know, it brings it into the science fiction genre, is it brings in this big symphonic romantic sound to the background music. So uh, never, ever forget that it's John Williams that makes Star Wars happen. That is a great score. And I, I, I believe John Williams has long since descended into hackery. I think when he tries to score a serious movie, it, it is like somebody beating you over the head with a hammer. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, but yeah. when he does action movies, you're right. I mean, it's it's excellent. exactly. Did you mm -hmm. see? Did you see Lincoln? No, I did not. The score to Lincoln is so aggravating. It it it, it is it is like it is like John Williams has come into the theater, has grabbed you by the shoulders, and is shaking you, saying, "See how important Lincoln was." Oh. Well, um, I am not going to talk about something else because I already talked about a bunch of stuff that was interesting to me, but I am going to say that I am kind of dreading watching Empire Strikes Back, which was my favorite when I was a teenager, and I am especially dreading seeing Yoda, who was my favorite character as a teenager and who I'm pretty sure is going to drive me crazy as an adult. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, see if, we'll, see, we'll see if my prediction comes true. <laughs> Yoda's a terrible actor. He just like <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Miss Piggy. <laughs> well, this is normally the time of the show where I'd ask uh, you what we were doing next week, but I think we all know. Uh, Danny will be uh, moderating our conversation about The Empire Strikes Back, your first moderating episode. I'll see what I can do, all right? Everybody be nice to him. May the Force be with me. Only a master of evil, Darth. <laughs> um, in the meantime, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Feel free to tell me what an idiot I am for uh, daring to criticize the performances in Star Wars. Uh, you can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore, for Danny Anderson, and for the absent David Grubb saying, let your sin be strong and let your faith be strong.